Why are conservatives so often viewed as uncaring? Arthur Brooks will join us to talk about his new book, The Conservative Heart, How to Build a Fairer, Happier, and More Prosperous America. The big problem with conservatives is they didn't care about poor people. They might be good with money, they might be competent or responsible in fiscal management, but they don't care about the least advantaged among us in our, in our society. Why do we know so much more about Hiroshima than we do about the second bomb? Susan Southard will join us to talk about Nagasaki, life after nuclear war. While he was um, doing rescue work in the ruins, he had to step over this baby, and suddenly he realized that he didn't want his granddaughter to live through such an experience. Alexander Alter has the latest from the literary world. Greg Coles has bestseller news. And this week, we'll let listeners and readers weigh in on our bookends question, who should be kicked out of the literary canon? This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. Arthur Brooks joins us now. He is the president of the American Enterprise Institute and the author of a new book, The Conservative Heart, How to Build a Fairer, Happier, and More Prosperous America. Hi, Arthur. Hi, Pamela. So I have to start with your rather intriguing pre-AEI background. According to the jacket copy you spent of your book, you spent 12 years as a professional French hornist with the City Orchestra of Barcelona and other ensembles. So how did you get from there to the American Enterprise Institute? You mean not every conservative think tank president starts out as a French horn player? Not even every <laughs> liberal uh, one does. Yeah, exactly. Well, I start. I, a musician was what I always wanted to be as a kid. I grew up in Seattle, Washington, a, a sort of a conventionally politically liberal family of artists and academics. And it was a foregone conclusion that I was going to wind up as a professional musician because what I always wanted to do. And at 19, I dropped out of college or, you know, dropped out, kicked out, splitting hairs at this point. And I, and I went on the road and I played chamber music for a while. And I played with a jazz guitar player named Charlie Bird for a while. And, and then I wound up in the Barcelona Symphony. When I was in Barcelona, uh, I decided I wanted to make a change. I started to study by correspondence. And I got just fascinated, weirdly, by economics. And the main reason is I was trying to figure out the answer to a question. What, what causes the end of poverty? How can people get out of poverty? And I was studying international trade and finance and development. And, and I found some things that really shocked me. It challenged my preconceived notions. I found that about 2 billion people have been pulled out of starvation level poverty since I was a child, uh, which was an 80% decline in the world's worst poverty. And it was basically not due to parastatal or transnational organizations like the United Nations. Good or bad, people disagree, but it was not due to foreign aid or anything like that. It was due to globalization, free trade, property rights, the rule of law, and the spread of entrepreneurship, basically American-style entrepreneurship around the world. And I was shocked by that. I, I, it wasn't what I was trying to find. It wasn't what I was most interested in finding. But on contemplation of that, it made me a lot more accepting of, of free enterprise principles and, and made me wonder, how can these principles work even better? How can they be pushed down even more toward the poor around the world in the United States? And that led me on an intellectual journey um, to academia. I became an economist. And after academia, to the American Enterprise Institute. Okay, there we there we have it. How to go from being a French horn player to a uh, a, think, a right wing think tank or conservative it's think tank. Three easy steps. Right. <laughs> you have an argument in this book. Um, the title is "The Conservative Heart." Let's start with the title, and then what's the argument? Basically, it it, it acknowledges 
that not everybody thinks there is one. Uh, growing up, um, I heard as a kid that the problem with conservatives is not that they were stupid or evil. I mean, we heard that sometimes too. But the, the big problem with conservatives is they didn't care about poor people. They were hard-hearted. They might be good with money. They might be competent or responsible in fiscal management, but they don't care about the least advantaged among us in our, in our society. Uh, and so I, when I found these things that I just talked about, about how poverty had been alleviated on a mass scale for the first time in human history, uh, it made me wonder how conservatives who espoused a lot of these economic principles, how they thought about poverty. And in talking to conservatives privately, I found that they cared an awful lot about it. They really did have a heart for the poor. They just didn't talk very well. So the point of the book, The Conservative Heart, is to reveal the truth about how poverty can be alleviated and how conservatives can talk about it such that people understand that they care more. The the big irony of our time is that these principles, these economic principles are actually so good if deployed properly for poor people, but people still don't trust conservatives to help poor people because they sound so hard-hearted. I mean, the main reason liberals think that conservatives don't care is because conservatives talk as if they didn't care. This book is effectively a a manual on how to reveal the hearts to other people, which is a really good thing for the political process to establish a moral consensus in America. I think that it's good for liberals to hear what conservatives really think and good for conservatives to reveal what they really think. So the problem isn't the message, it's the phrasing of the message. Well, it's uh, the message sometimes, too. I think that on both left and right, there isn't, truth be told, really enough attention paid to poor people. I think that just in general, I think that on the political left, there's poor people are taken for granted, and on the right, they're kind of ignored too much. Uh, and so I do want to change the content of what people are thinking, but I also want to change the way that people talk about it, such that there's more of this overt moral consensus around which we can build a better, better America. Why do you think they're too often ignored, the poor, on the right? I think a, a large part of it has to do believe it or not, with just basic politics, there's a view on the political right that the poor will never vote for Republicans and conservatives, which is not true, by the way, but it's also morally irrelevant. Uh, My own view is that leaders and patriots don't fight for people who support them. They fight for people who need them. And in America today, uh, economic policy has been practically a conspiracy against poor people on both the left and the right. The war on poverty over the past 50 years, which largely characterizes a more politically progressive view on how to spend, how to deploy government resources in the service of the poor, has not lowered the poverty rate meaningfully. It's alleviated some material need, but it's led to greater or or less workforce involvement, greater idleness from able-bodied people, which hurts dignity and hurts our society. And uh, on the right, they'll look at poor people and advocates for the poor and say, look, that's not our constituency, so why are we going to worry about it? But that's the wrong attitude. So I I want a new right consensus that will help poor people a lot more, and it'll be morally, I think, better ordered. There are a few issues that stand out um, that um, people on the left perceive the right as being uncaring um, or heartless or whatever you want to say, uh, however you want to phrase it. And I would say that, you know, just in terms of of current economic issues, one, obviously, the minimum wage, the second, uh, inequality, and the third, taxation. So let's just go through those one by one. With the minimum wage, um, your argument is that there is a, um, a strong reason to oppose 
an increase in the minimum wage, but that conservatives don't make that case clear. How would you argue the case against an um, increase in the minimum wage? The problem with an increase in the minimum wage, particularly a big increase in the minimum wage like President Obama wants, or an even larger one like we're seeing in places like Seattle and San Francisco, is not that it's bad for business. That shouldn't be the concern of, of conservatives. And the reason is because business is very, very clever, and business will find ways to exist and to thrive. The reason is because it, it harms the most vulnerable people in the workforce. And this is something that responsible economists on the right and left agree on. There are a few studies, pathological studies, studies that are really not accepted that show this is not true. Virtually everything, the consensus among economists is that when you raise the minimum wage a lot, you destroy jobs at the very bottom. And those are jobs held by the people who are most vulnerable. So if you raise the minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour, you're going to be giving a raise to my high school-aged children. But you're going to be throwing people out of work who don't have a high school diploma and have a very uh, uh, tenuous grasp on the workforce. And those are the people who need to be in the workforce the most to get ahead. Now, the problem with the conservative argument against it is it tends to say, we're against the minimum wage, and they offer nothing in return. We have to recognize that earning the minimum wage currently is not good enough so that people can support themselves and their families. And we should have, a, again, a strong moral consensus and opportunity in this country that if you work hard and play by the rules, you should be able to earn a living and, and support your family. So you've got to have another policy. What's the other say, policy? I offered a bunch of policies in the book, and one of the policies I like the best is called the Earned Income Tax Credit. It's a policy that's been around for a long time, but it needs to be expanded to single men, people without kids in the home. And what it effectively does is it uses public sector resources as wage subsidies and doesn't destroy jobs at the bottom because it doesn't price anybody out of the workforce. Does it cost money? Yeah, it costs money. But I think most people want to pay taxes for that. And I think conservatives right now need to declare peace on the safety net because we have an opportunity in our society to make work pay, to give people more dignified lives without creating dependence, so we can have creative solutions like that. You brought up taxes, so let's go uh, directly to that. One of the things I think that um, you know people on the left will say about the right is that the sort of fundamental opposition to raising taxes makes policy changes like that difficult. What would your argument or what do you think the right should be saying in terms of tax increases? We don't have too little tax revenue. I mean, it's just a myth in America that we don't have enough tax revenue. We have a lot of tax revenue out there. The problem is that we're spending tax revenues wrong in ways that are politically difficult to change. And it's a lack of leadership on both left and the right that we don't want to tackle the most wasteful things. I mean, we always have these kind of unproductive red herring discussions about getting rid of earmarks. And I'm against earmarks, of course, but discretionary domestic spending is not the way to cut spending. You have to talk about entitlements in this country, about the way that we spend money on Medicare, which is not optimal, which is not especially helpful to senior citizens, and which wastes tons of money. We're spending 70% of the federal budget today on entitlement programs, and we're politically unable, and this includes Republicans, by the way, are, are politically incapable of taking on the obvious reforms that we need in Social Security and Medicare that would actually free up more, more funds so that we can, with the funds that we currently have without raising taxes, so that we can serve the poor with a safety net that is, that is reliable. And if we don't do it, by the way, um, we know what's going to happen. 
you know, you're looking at the periphery countries in Europe, the problem that they're having, that the poor are having, come from austerity, which is catastrophic for poor people. It always is. Austerity never hurts rich people. It only hurts poor people. It comes because of insolvency, and insolvency comes because of, uh, of a misuse of funds toward entitlements that are run away. It's effectively a safety net for middle-class people and above. If we can't take on those things, we're not going to make progress. Mm-hmm. We just say we need more taxes. But we don't need more taxes. We need more brains when it comes to spending. So we need more brains when it comes to spending, but more heart in terms of how to explain that kind of policy. Exactly right. More heart. And and part of having a heart in this is being able to say, I'm going to do hard things politically because I want to make sure that the poor never pay. I mean, one thing that should be at the heart of our moral consensus is that all of our work go for the benefit of people with less power than we have. Mm-hmm. That there's more opportunity that's pushed to the bottom. We're not doing that today. The left is not doing it, and the right is not doing that today. What we're doing is we're pushing more and more power to people who already have power because it's politically an easy thing to do. And that's, that's just a, a big moral error. And ultimately, it will be a big economic error as well. But given the reality of electoral politics and fundraising and all of that, uh, not to bring up a whole other uh, can mm-hmm. of worms, but um, given that, isn't it not just expedient, but perhaps necessary for policy to be directed toward those with more power rather than less? It, it's, it's not uh, inevitable. It absolutely isn't. And it, what, what's happening is that we're in a moment of sort of competing pessimisms where both sides politically are not leading. They're following. Mm-hmm. When the president of the United States or the leader of the Republican opposition, whoever it happens to be, says, America's angry, and I'm going to give voice to that anger, that's following. That's followership. That's right. not leadership. Leaders actually look at anger or envy, and those are the two main negative emotions that we see in our political system, and they convert them, they pivot those things to aspiration. Mm-hmm. That's what the leaders are supposed to do, and what we have is a, is a moment of pessimism and division from the President of the United States and the opposition party that's extremely unproductive, and what we need is breakout aspirational leadership. Great leaders can take a country to war when it's necessary. There's nothing that has more sacrifice for a nation than war. This isn't war that we're talking about. This is entitlement reform. but, But again, if you don't have leaders, if you have followers in charge who care about power more than they care about actually leading the country to aspirationally to a better place, it's not going to happen. In your book, you, you call for a social justice agenda for a new right. What do you mean by that? Well, the social justice agenda for the new right effectively recognizes that social justice is a, it's a good thing. A lot of conservatives hear it and they say, oh, it's, that's a liberal idea. It's not a liberal idea. Social justice is a good idea. It just depends on how you define it and how you execute it. So we shouldn't run away from it. We should say, what is fairness? What is compassion? What is equality? What is dignity? And how do we define those things? How do we execute those things in a just society? And I march through what I think the right agenda actually is. And it starts with values, you know, one of the big, the right's biggest problems is that they're very strong on what they consider to be traditional values, but they use them frequently as a weapon, as a cudgel against people who disagree. That's insane. If you believe that your values are the secret to your success, then they're a gift, a gift to be shared. Not everybody's going to take the gift. Not everybody's going to recognize it as a good thing. But very few people will be hateful and hostile to you if you're not hateful and hostile with your values to begin with. I mean, the, the, there's an eternal truth that nobody's ever converted by being insulted enough. Mm-hmm. 
And, and so when, when we talk about traditional values that are the secrets to success as an empirical matter in the social science literature, you find that they are faith, family, community, and work. And faith doesn't mean a particular religious faith, Christianity or any other. It means a sense of the transcendental, a sense of the greater other. Uh, family is self-explanatory. Community is friendship and charity. And, and work is this idea that dignity comes from earned success through creating value with one's life. It doesn't come at the end of a welfare check, although that's necessary to get sometimes. It comes at the end of being compensated in some way, socially in some way. These are the four institutions of meaning that you talk about. Exactly right. Um, those are the secrets to success that we share with our kids. But in a good society, we have to share those things in a spirit of love with everybody and without embarrassment. That's the first step. The second is... How do you, what do you do in policy to help people who've fallen behind? And that's where I have basically a three-step a three step solution for conservatives. The first is to declare peace on the safety net, like I said just a minute ago. You can't keep saying that the solution to runaway spending on food stamps is just to cut food stamps. That's, that's insane. The solution is to create a society where fewer people need food stamps through greater opportunity. But that also means we should celebrate the fact that free enterprise has created so much wealth that for the first time in human history, through our government, we can help people we've never even met. That's, we should be celebrating that. But only for the indigent, not for everybody. This is not a sharing program. It's what it turned into through crony capitalism and middle-class welfare. And third, always with work. We need work requirements because those are successful and they're, they're part of an incontrovertible conservative value, and we should bring that to the debate. Then we can have a a friendly, brotherly debate with progressives about how the safety net can help people more. All right. We did not get to your very intriguingly titled last chapter, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Conservatives, but I will leave that for readers. Arthur, thank you so much. Thank you, Pamela. It's been a pleasure to be with you. You too. Uh, Arthur C. Brooks is the author of The Conservative Heart, How to Build a Fairer, Happier, and More Prosperous America, reviewed by Gregory Mankiw in this week's book review. Alexandra Alters here with Notes from the Literary World. Hi, Alexandra. Hi, Pamela. What are we going to talk about? Well, if you can believe it, literary award season has started in the middle of summer. It crept up this year. The Man Booker Prize released their long list of nominees. There are 13 writers nominated this year. And this is the only the second year that the prize has been open to writers who of, of any nationality that write in English primarily. Previously, it was open to writers from the UK, Ireland, and the Commonwealth nations. And there was a lot of hand-wringing about that last year, but... Um, People seem to have gotten over it. This year, there were five Americans on the list and three people from the UK. Um, and that's not the only way in which the list was more diverse than in previous years. Yes, there was um, strong representation from women this year. There were five women included on the uh, long list of 13 writers. So that was exciting to see. There were some surprises. Bill Clegg, who is better known as a literary agent and a memoirist, was nominated for his debut novel, Did You Ever Have a Family, which comes out this September. It was a very heated, competitive acquisition. It's also the debut for a new imprint. Exactly. It's um, a new imprint that's called Scout, which is part of Gallery Books, which is part of Simon & Schuster, and it's their new literary fiction imprint, which they basically created because they really wanted to publish Bill Clegg's novel and they didn't have a literary fiction imprint. Don't tell me Scout came from To Kill a Mockingbird. I don't believe it did. All right. Um, But But that'll lead right into another surprise (laughs) or maybe not so surprising given the reviews that Ghost Set a Watchman was not on the list. Not on the list. It didn't make it in. um, There were a couple of other 
prominent writers that weren't nominated. Salman Rushdie has a novel coming out this year. Um, Comes out in October. In October. Um, Margaret Atwood was not nominated. Jonathan Franzen, of course, has a novel coming out. So explain the rules a little bit. You can be nominated even if your book hasn't come out. They just they read everything that's coming out for the year and consider it. I believe that's the case. And, you know, some of the um, American authors that were nominated for the Man Booker this year actually had books that came out last year in the U.S. but were published in the U.K. this year. Right. Um, Marilyn Robinson for Lila. Ann Tyler for A Spool of Blue Thread. That came out this year, I believe. The Man Booker is an exciting prize. It's one of the most coveted literary prizes. It comes with um, a significant cash prize, and it also often provides a massive sales boost for the winner. Um, So it was exciting this year to see so many people from different countries nominated. Marlon James, who's from Jamaica, was nominated for his novel, Brief History of Seven Killings. Um, there was an author from Nigeria, Chigozi Obiyama, was nominated for his debut novel, The Fisherman. Actually, that novel was reviewed in our pages by Fia Metarocco, who I believe is the interim president of the Van Booker oh, Committee. Oh, so he had maybe a leg up. He had a fan already. <laughs> she gave it a very positive review in, in the book review. We reviewed nine of the 13, and one is to come. And I think the other three have not been released yet in the States. If I'm not mistaken. Good track record. Well, they apparently considered 156 books for this year's prize. And we'll see who makes the finalist when. When does the shortlist come out? The shortlist will be announced on September 15th. I'm sure we'll be talking about that too. And the winner will be announced on October 13th. All right. Thanks, Alexandra. Thanks for having me. Susan Southard joins us now. She is the author of Nagasaki, Life After Nuclear War. Susan, hi. Hi, Pamela. Okay, the first thing I want to ask is that you are a theater director and you have an MFA in creative writing, uh, not a historian. I'm curious why you decided to write this book about the atomic bomb in Nagasaki. My relationship with Nagasaki survivors goes pretty far back. I lived in Japan when I was in high school, so I speak Japanese. And in 1986, I was living in Washington, D.C., and I, I went to hear a Nagasaki survivor speak. He was on a speaking tour of the East Coast of the United States. And I was absolutely, totally gripped by his story. It was so phenomenal and so unimaginable, but also captivating of my imagination. That the, and I ended up being his interpreter for two days. His interpreter got ill, I believe, and they asked me if I would do it. So I, I got to know him pretty well over those two days and really could never release the power of his story. And it was many years later, it was like 13 years later, when I finally was able, due to different life circumstances, to uh, begin project on the book. Why don't we know as much about Nagasaki as we do about Hiroshima? Well, I think it's for several reasons. Um, one is that Hiroshima was the first bomb, and in that, the first atomic bomb dropped during wartime in history. So from that perspective, it took on a, a unique role as a historical symbol of the atomic bombings. And over time, uh, Nagasaki kind of became fused in, in its identity with Hiroshima as almost like a singular event as opposed to two separate and distinct events on different cities with different geographies, different people at a different moment in time. What made Nagasaki different from Hiroshima? 
the city itself, uh, the two cities are quite different. Uh, Nagasaki uh, is a city on the coast uh, built around a, a long, narrow bay, and it's surrounded by mountains. It's a beautiful um, geographical city. And Hiroshima is uh, very, very flat with small rivers running all the way through it. One of the biggest differences culturally about the two cities at the time of the bomb was that Nagasaki was the largest Christian community in Asia with uh, an estimated 20,000 Catholics living there. So there was a a very big difference that way. Nagasaki is also more remote from uh, the main island. uh, Hiroshima is on the main island of Honshu, uh, and Nagasaki is on the southernmost island and the western coast of the southernmost island, Kyushu, the southernmost island. There's some significant differences there. And what about in terms of the two bombs and the effects that they had on the population and on the cities? How is Nagasaki distinct from Hiroshima after the bomb? Well, after the bomb, they're very different because the bombs were different and the people were different. And every single person who died and every single person who survived, their stories, each has a unique and individual story, even though we can kind of say talk about them in broad strokes. The bombs were actually different atomic bombs, Hiroshima's being a uranium bomb and Nagasaki's being a plutonium bomb. The impact on the survivors in very large strokes was similar. The power of the blasts were slightly different, but nonetheless so powerful we can not imagine either one. The heat of the blast was so powerful and the radiation effects were very, very intense. Nagasaki is different because it did, uh, even compared to Hiroshima, as you mentioned earlier, kind of become more and more invisible within a historical context. And the survivors were much more isolated. And they were isolated in Hiroshima, too, because in the years of U.S. occupation in Japan, the occupation censorship policies kept any word of what was going on on the ground in either city from uh, reaching even people within their own country, much less people outside Japan. For a long time in Japan, the um, victims, there was a a sense of of shame and there was a lot of mistreatment of them by other Japanese. When did that start to change? When did they sort of come out and begin to tell their stories? It hasn't begun to change completely. Most survivors do not tell their stories even now, even to their families. They don't speak about the atomic bombings. The five survivors whose stories I tell in Nagasaki are unique, a a small cadre of survivors who have, for very different and personal reasons, made the decision to speak out and tell their experiences. Their goal is that Nagasaki is the last atomic-bombed city in history and that nuclear weapons will be eliminated from across the globe. Had they already come out before you spoke to them for this book, or was this book their sort of their first uh, chance to No, no, they had already uh, begun speaking. Mm -hmm. Mr. Taniguchi, the man I I met in Washington, D.C., began very early on uh, in the um, mid to late 1950s. He was one of the earliest Nagasaki activists and has remained so and still is at age 86. He just came back from the uh, United Nations Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty 
review committee meetings where he spoke in front of the United Nations. But the others, the other four, came much later in the late 80s and early 90s because of unique events. For example, one man held his granddaughter for the very first time, a tiny infant, and he had a flashback of uh, a baby, a charred baby that while he was um, doing rescue work in the ruins, he had to step over this baby, and suddenly he realized that he didn't want his granddaughter to live through such an experience or any child uh, anywhere in, on earth, and he he made a decision that he needed to do something personal about it. When you set out to write this book, um, I imagine John Hersey's Hiroshima was in your mind. Did you think of writing this as a kind of companion or counterpart to Hersey's book? Hersey's book is so powerful, and it is still read today, 70 years or 69 years later, what Hersey's book couldn't have done at the time, since it was written in 1946, is follow survivors' lives through the long-term effects of nuclear survival. And there is a great deal uh, to be said about what happens over the first decade, the second decade, the third, all the way up until now for the survivors of uh, Nagasaki and Hiroshima. And also, since Nagasaki's story hadn't been told, I, I really felt it was critical that people in the United States and people across the world really uh, begin to grasp Nagasaki as the second city bombed and uh, what happened to the people there beneath the mushroom cloud and in the 70 years since. Given that so many of the quote-unquote survivors have already died, um, mm -hmm. and they're, they're now getting old, uh, even those who didn't die already of side effects, and they're not talking. Is there a fear that this sort of personal side of this history is going to be lost? Yes, it's a big concern in Nagasaki among the, uh, the, the organizations that really work to promote the personal stories. There's a lot of new initiatives that are being kind of brainstormed and implemented to figure out ways to videotape the uh, survivors telling their stories and to train the next generation of uh, people who want to see these stories uh, be heard for them to tell the stories in the survivors' own words in public presentations. It's very interesting dilemma, and it's of great concern, but they're also using a lot of creativity to try to make it happen. All right. Well, your book, obviously, an important part of the historical record. Um, the book, again, is Nagasaki, Life After Nuclear War by Susan Southard. Susan, thank you so much again. Thank you, Pamela, very much. John Williams joins us now as the voice of our readers. Hi, John. Hi, Pamela. So we asked readers and listeners this week, if you were in charge of the canon, who would be kicked out? It's the same question we asked for bookend columnists James Parker and Francine Prose. And we posted this on Twitter and on Facebook, and some people emailed us as well. And John lets us know. I'm the voice for the a island. very large contingent of readers this week, especially on Facebook, where a lot of people responded to this question. I mean, it's something that gets people. I think everyone has someone in mind already. So when but you ask hate. them, they have, yeah, they have it <laughs> that at the they ready. they hated reading in high school? 
But first I'm going to go to, because James Parker, one of our columnists, wrote about kicking out Wordsworth. And in fairness to James's argument, I think a lot of it has to do with his relationship with Coleridge and how he was kind of a bad friend rather than a bad poet. Um, but readers still jump to Wordsworth's defense, and here are a few of those. Jordan McPhee Torres on Facebook wrote, Wordsworth's verse will always be revered for its ambiguous and intensity and strikingly vivid depictions of the British countryside. He will always have a place in the canon. Chris Wiseman likewise said, I disagree strongly re-Wordsworth. The prelude is perhaps the first directly confessional poem and opened up the narrow gates of neoclassicism once and for all. So readers are getting very serious this week about their literary But history. who do they want to kick out? That's who they want to keep in. <laughs> well, that is who they want to keep in. And then on Twitter, Where Stephanie, people are meaner. Where people are meaner and, and more pithy. J. Greg Clark said, I've struggled unhappily with Pynchon. I've never liked Hemingway. But the canon's not a team roster. All can stay. John R. Heckerman said, my personal pleasure would be to assign a Christmas carol to a holiday period reading list and then excise the rest of Charles Dickens's wordy, ponderous, self-righteous works to a back shelf somewhere. Wow. So he's not mincing words. Well, and I then, agree with him if it comes to if it's the Pickwick Papers. but Yeah, everyone has a least favorite Dickens. and But for some people, it's a Christmas carol. So John would have to convince them. Michael Burke on Facebook said, Hemingway and T.S. Eliot. One hit wonders who hypnotized a generation of academics. And I wish that Michael had taken the space on Facebook to tell me which were the hits, because I don't think of them as one hit. John, do you have uh, someone you want to kick out? John's a very nice guy. He's going to get around this answer. I'm a nice guy. I'll get around it somehow. No, you know, the truth is, is that as I get older, I find that a lot of the canonical writers who I didn't like when I was younger, I now like. So I always feel like if you answer this question 10 years from now, you're going to disagree with yourself really strongly because you kind of grow and figure out what's great about them rather than the than the reverse. But one last thing, Belinda Jean on Twitter said, shouldn't the real question be who decides what the so-called canon includes? And I think for this week, we gave that power to James Parker and Francine Prose, and they get into that very issue a little bit in their essays. So people can read that in this week's book review. The real answer is that, of course, you, John Williams, are in charge. Exactly. All right. Thanks, John. Thanks, Pamela. Greg Coles is here with Bestseller News. Hi, Greg. Hi, Pamela. What's going on on the list? As far as I can tell, Pamela, everyone is still reading Harper Lee and Ta-Nehisi Coates. Uh, those books remain at number one, uh, Ghost at a Watchman on the fiction side and Between the World and Me on the nonfiction side. Do we have a prediction for how long that'll last? A long, long time. All right. <laughs> Let's see if you're right. <laughs> um, there are just a couple of new titles, one each in fiction and nonfiction. On the fiction side of things, uh, the new book is Speaking in Bones. It is the latest in the Temperance Brennan series by Kathy Rikes. That's new at number seven. Nonfiction, there's a surfing memoir um, by a guy better known for his war reporting and international coverage for The New Yorker, William Finnegan. He was on the podcast last week. Yeah. Uh, his book, Barbarian Days, uh, makes its debut at number five. How well do surfing books do generally? Is this, is this a novelty for a surfing memoir? There haven't been a lot of surfing memoirs and certainly not a lot of well-received surfing memoirs. Um, they don't tend to hit the bestseller list. There have been, uh, in recent years, a couple of good surfing novels, the one that comes immediately 
immediately to mind is the book Breath by the Australian novelist Tim Winton, who's an excellent novelist in general, and that book is all about surfing. It did not hit the list, though, and um, I looked back a little ways, and I couldn't find any other surfing books that, that have hit the list. There have been a lot of war books and international books on the list, of course, but not William Finnegan's. This is actually his first bestseller. So it took surfing to get him there. There you go. All right. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. Our producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.